Good afternoon, 7 Investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of 7 Investing Now. It's the first of the month. That is a big day for us here at 7 Investing. That means our new stock picks are out. So if you're not a member, what are you doing? Go join 7investing.com slash subscribe. We'll wait for you. We're going we're gonna to vamp a little bit at the top of the show. So you have a few minutes to go join. $17 a month or $170 a year. That means two months free. I'm joined today by Max Chatsko. Max, how was your weekend? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, hectic end of the month for us. You know, we're trying to get everything ready and uh, on the website and everything, but it's all there for everyone to look at. So go check it yeah. out. We've asked the U.S. government to make the first of the month always like a Wednesday or something convenient for us, but it falls on holidays. Like I was shocked that New Year's Day fall, fell on the first of the month this year. Like that was very inconvenient for us. Uh, and, it, and two months in a row falling on a Monday, which caused me to get, I don't know, 85 Slack messages after 10 o'clock last night. And I got to say, I'm not the most functional person. I was trying to make sense of the Golden Globes. I'm pretty sure. And Max, I know you're not super into pop culture. I am pretty sure 60% of the movies and TV shows that won or were nominated for Golden Globes aren't real because I'd never heard of any of them. Emily in Paris, that is not a real show. There's no possibility that's a real show. But Max, before we talk about our, our two big topics today, we're going to talk about the new single shot uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Then we're going to talk about what I think of as the myth of recovery stocks. But before we do that, you've all heard me complain about customer service on this show. And I want to share sort of a positive story. So I shared on Twitter that I love Starbucks and I, and I tweeted this to Starbucks. I love, I love Target, but how come when you put a Starbucks in a Target, it is the least competent Starbucks there ever is. And there's a reason for it. Those employees are Target employees, not Starbucks employees. But within maybe 10 minutes of me sharing that, I got a message very quickly from the people at Target, from the Ask Target crew, and they asked me to DM them what store I was talking about and what my complaints were. And I sent them the information. I said, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. It's, it's, it's always the fact that there's only one person working. That's not the person's fault. Uh, and I said, like, if you go during a busy time in the morning, it always takes forever because there's one person. So he or she has to take an order, fill an order. And when I went in on Sunday, there were two people working. They told me they would solve the problem, and I believe they actually solved the problem. Max, you're not a coffee guy, right? But you've been in a Starbucks, right? Yeah, I'm more of a more of a tea guy. But I, in one of the ways, one of the many ways I let my team down here at Seven Investing, I, I only drink decaf. So, yeah, that that that's disappointing. <laughs> I, I've tried to cut back. I only drink one cup of caffeine a day. I actually make my own decaffeinated cold brew, which is just embarrassing. Um, but that being said, I like that at Target has a whole team that addresses problems. That's what more companies should be doing. We talked about earlier last week that I had an issue with DoorDash where they brought two of our three entrees and their solution to that wasn't going to pick up my third entree. It was to refund me for the third entree. And I, I, I live tweeted at them. You know, I, I tagged them in my tweet and they did not answer. And that tweet has had dozens of responses. Terrible, terrible customer service. But Max, we're going to pivot. Our top story today, uh, part of it is the new single dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Why don't you give us a quick overview of what happened over the weekend? Yeah, so uh, on Friday, I don't know why they always seem to do these on Fridays. They seem like big events, but uh, an FDA panel recommended the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine for the new coronavirus strain for approval. Then over the weekend, the FDA gave it the green light, uh, the emergency use authorization. That is, it's not formally approved. Neither are any of the other vaccines for that matter, but uh, now it can be distributed is the important part. So uh, that should be coming out this month, rolling across uh, various places in the United States. 
So, Max, you know I'm vaccinated because I went and volunteered. And some states, uh, Florida has just moved to 65 plus with a note from a doctor. If you're younger, you can get vaccinated if you have a serious health issue. Connecticut just moved to 55 plus, which is likely the biggest group of people. So it's absolute chaos. How quickly are we going to move from this like uh, competition over getting vaccine slots to walk into just like you would a flu shot? walk into your local CVS and there's a vaccine there or go to a hospital that has the uh, facilities needed for the, the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine and you can get it pretty easily. How close are we to that? I think we're probably still a month or two away from that, but it's only going to get easier uh, every week. I mean, we have, you know, Moderna and BioNTech and Pfizer, each respectively making, you know, more of their supply available. And now, of course, we have Johnson & Johnson, you know, with a whole new vaccine entering um, and that's going to change a lot of the logistics uh, for vaccine, you know, rollout uh, broadly for the whole country. So we would love your questions and comments. In theory, wherever you're watching this, if you share questions, share a comment, uh, we're going to be talking recovery stocks later in the show. And then in the last segment, we're going to do no stupid questions, uh, which is really where we just take your questions from Twitter, from the live audience, and whatever you want to ask us about, we will try to talk about it. So the reason we're talking about vaccines isn't just because, you know, Max has a biomedical background. It's because the sooner 70% of the population, and Max, correct me if my numbers are wrong, has the vaccine or has had a serious case of the, of the coronavirus, we will be approaching herd immunity or at herd immunity. And that's when we can hit normal. So when we talk about recovery stocks in the next segment, that's going to mean things like, oh, okay, I might still have to wear a mask, but like, I could go visit a group of people. I might be able to go to a concert. I might be able to go, you know, to places that, you know, right now casinos might be able to allow eight people at a card table instead of four, whatever the numbers are. So that's why we're talking about this. But Max, there are three different vaccines and you see all sorts of percentages and numbers. And this is 65%. This is 95%. The Johnson and Johnson one in the surface reporting has lower numbers, but are these apples to apples comparisons? Are people missing something? Yeah, it's really tempting, right, to look at, um, you know, the numbers in the in the headline and to look at the efficacy rates and compare those across all three vaccines we have now. And uh, that's not really the way to go about it. You know, for one thing, um, you know, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines each required two shots. So they're going to have higher efficacy and effectiveness just right from that. Um, also, these studies were conducted at different points in the pandemic. You know, Johnson & Johnson didn't start its trial until uh, July or September um, you know, so it started, it, it, it did its major vaccine trial when more contagious variants were spreading, right? We we're at a different phase in the trajectory of the pandemic. So that affected some of its, uh, its numbers as well. But the important thing is that, you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is effective. It's safe. Um, you know, the, from the phase three trial, it said it was 72% effective in the U.S. And it was less effective in other countries, right? They ran trials in South Africa, um, another one in Europe, I think. Um, and those were less effective, not because the vaccine was less effective against those variants necessarily, um, but also because of the the delivery technology that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses. So some people were just naturally resistant to that delivery technology. Um, so the vaccine didn't even get a chance to, you know, do its thing within their bodies. Um, and we just borne that out. Uh, the FDA said that over the weekend and last week, you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is actually the most effective one we have now. Uh, against some of these emerging variants. There's a South African variant, a UK variant. Looks like California and New York might have their own variants now. Um, you know, so this is a, a very big, you know, development here. Not just having three vaccines, but this one can be shipped and stored at, 
you know, refrigerator temperatures. So, you know, I see this maybe shuffling where the supply for the other two vaccines end up going, right? Um, you know, Walmart's going to become one of the largest vaccine distributors, uh, you know, in the whole country. And it's in rural communities, right? Um, a lot of places that, uh, you know, the BioNTech and, and the Pfizer vaccine, or I'm sorry, and the Moderna vaccines can't get to necessarily. It's not very easy. So I see Johnson & Johnson maybe going into more of those communities. Uh, maybe the, you know, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines go to more suburban and urban population centers where it's, you know, we have more infrastructure in place uh, for those, the freezers and things like that. So this moves a lot of logistics out, both directly and indirectly, Dan. So to put it short, this is really, really good news for the economic recovery. And I'll, I'll quote uh, indirectly Dr. Fauci a little bit. The best vaccine for you, for like 99.8% of people, is whatever vaccine is available. Because as we look at these different efficacy rates, what they're missing is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is, I'll say nearly, even though it's actually 100%, but it's nearly 100%, because we don't have the data to actually say 100%. Uh, able to protect you from severe cases of the in illness and death. So here's the reality. If you can take something that turns what would have been a severe debilitating bout of COVID-19 that might put you in the hospital, which increases your risk in all sorts of other areas with infections and who knows what going on, and turns it into an annoyance where like you don't feel great for a week or two, that's not fun, but that's great. Like if you told you know if you told me I could get a terrible flu that might turn into pneumonia or I could have the sniffles for two weeks, I'm obviously going to opt for the sniffles. So if you can get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, get it. Don't go vaccine shopping. Try the more of us have this faster. And it's worth noting that they are doing trials uh, of a second dose, a dose of the second dose of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine at 57 days. Uh, and the idea is to see if that boosts the efficacy. We might see with all of these vaccines that there's a third dose of the ones that take two or a second dose of the one that takes one to deal with variants, to boost immunity. There might be people who, when they go to their annual physical, the doctor takes their antigens and the, the levels aren't high enough. So this is an emerging science, even though we know a lot about vaccines, we don't know an enormous amount about the long-term effects of these particular vaccines. Uh, or how they react. So Max, we're going to pivot to uh, recovery stock. So let's talk about what a recovery stock is, because I find this whole notion silly. So the idea was that during the pandemic, everybody invested in tech companies that like, wow, we're all stuck at home. So I'm going to buy Zoom and Teladoc and Microsoft and Apple and who knows what. Almost all of those, in fact, all of those really good companies, no matter how you look at it. And then post-pandemic, I'm going to pivot to hotel stocks, airline stocks, cruise line stocks, uh, and, and maybe like, a, you know, event-based stocks. And here's the fundamental problem. Most of those are bad businesses. So I find these idea, this idea that there's going to be recovery stocks. Max, I find this inherently flawed. Do you, do you disagree? No, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, like you said, how many of these were good businesses before the pandemic? You know, they might get a a boost for a quarter or two, maybe, and, and investors might get a little overexcited about those things. But uh, you know, a lot of these were not very great investments or businesses prior, right? Um, I mean, my example would be natural gas, right? We use natural gas for everything, heating homes. It was 40% of our power mix last year. Um, good luck trying to find a good natural gas stock for the long term. I mean, most of those just lose money. It's a commodity. It's everywhere. I can drill a hole in my backyard to probably find natural gas, you know? So, uh, <laughs> Here in Pittsburgh, we're, we're sitting on tons of it. So 
it's just the, the whole recovery stock idea is uh, not a good one, I don't think. Yeah, and let me give you a good example. So Starbucks, during the worst of the pandemic, sales were down about 30%. They did a pretty good job of pivoting very quickly to a curbside pickup, drive-through delivery model. So you look at Starbucks and go, wow, they're going to have a lot of sales when they can reopen their dining rooms, which are in some cases like here, there's tables outside, but you can't eat inside. And there are places where Starbucks dining rooms are open. But if you look at their stock price, it's hovering around its 52-week high. So any recovery you were going to see, there already was. And it's one of those scenarios where, Max, do you believe that you know maybe for a few weeks there'll be a bounce back where Starbucks does you know, 20% better than it normally would have in terms of customers just rewarding themselves. But do you think people are going to drink a lot more Frappuccinos on an enduring basis once they're uh, allowed to go back to normal? No, no. And that's, you know, I like, again, this summer might be pretty uh, fun, right? For for some people or whatever, right? People are going to be going out, going to concerts if they can, or maybe that's in the fall. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a temporary, it's going to be a temporary tailwind, just like the pandemic was a temporary headwind, right? So... Yeah. And so people are very excited about airlines. And here's the reality with airlines, with the exception of Southwest. uh, And some people say Alaska Airlines. I don't know that one that well. But of the major airlines, they're not great businesses. And Max, you can weigh in on this in a second. So you head to this summer, they might be able to raise prices for later booked travel. Right now, it's very inexpensive to book travel. I I, I have a trip coming up uh, in a few weeks, and I needed to make a change to that trip. And Southwest actually gave me money back because when I went to rebook, the new flights, which were more convenient flights under any circumstances, were cheaper than the old ones. So if you're selling airline fares for $59 or $79 that are usually four or $500, that's not going to really be a comeback. And Max, there's reasons these aren't great airlines aren't great businesses, right? Yeah, again, you know, whatever recovery stock you want to look at or industry, what were the metrics that mattered before the pandemic, you know? For airlines, it might be things like, you know, customer service or oil prices, right? Or probably in this decade, like greener routes and more efficient airplanes. So that doesn't change just because more people might be flying suddenly for a few months, right? I mean, um, so again, it's all pretty short-term thinking. Yeah, and, and gas and oil prices are relatively low right now, but we are going to see as we open up and more people go back to work, we're going to see a demand-driven increase whether supply is actually constrained or not. There's there's an ability to raise prices the more people want something. Gas prices often are based on demand. They're not always based on demand. Sometimes they're opportunistic uh, in terms of their ability to get them. So I would be very wary. People ask me about casinos a lot. I love to play in casinos. I don't generally consider casinos all that great a business. It's very capital intensive. Uh, you have to c- keep innovating digitally. You have to keep you know, re- revamping your hotel rooms every few years, building new properties, going to new markets. These are very, and I'm not saying there aren't winners in this space, but we don't see a lot of questions and comments. So we would love, we know a lot of you were watching. We would love your questions and comments on recovery stocks, but let me make a case for one airline, Max. And you can tell me if I'm crazy. So Southwest has traditionally been the best managed airline. And I think they've done a great job with their employees. Their employees have been part of the discussion. Should we all take 20% pay cuts to to get through this? Do some people want to take furloughs so other people don't have to? They've been very open and transparent. They've also maintained a pretty solid balance sheet, even though they lost money for the first time in their history for obvious reasons. And they've been able to capitalize and move into new routes and marketplaces. 
So I would argue that Southwest was a fringe investable business pre-pandemic. I think it's possible. And this is not an investment I'd make until we see what the recovery looks like and how, you know, have people found that they like traveling in their RV and they don't want to fly as often or business meetings truly become more Zoom-based. But I do think Southwest, if we return to some sort of normal, has picked up some very profitable areas and might be the one airline that comes out of this measurably stronger. Max, is that crazy? I guess that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> a lot of my wheelhouse, but sure. Yeah. You know, there's always differentiators and, and that's important too. Like you pointed out, um, even if we think airlines as a whole might be not a great idea for like long-term investing, there's always opportunities within each industry. Right. So we're not saying like never buy an airline. That, uh, yeah, in general, I say never buy an airline, but I know there are exceptions to that. Um, and Max, do you think tech companies, you're, you're a user of tech companies, do you think tech companies are going to like have some sort of massive crash once this ends? Like, we're still gonna, I'm still gonna use my Mac to do this live show. We're still gonna record team calls on Zoom. We might have some in-person meetings, but I don't see this like massive, like we're not all of a sudden gonna start like making fire with like a flint and a rock. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, I've been learning how to do smoke signals all pandemic, Dan, you wait. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, that's another reason that some of these recovery stocks are like, people think they're going to transition from tech stocks to recovery stocks and try to time it that way, or there's some play there to be more defensive. And you know, that's kind of flawed. I mean, a lot of tech companies are great businesses before the pandemic, during the pandemic, after the pandemic. What I see, Dan, is probably that the pandemic's accelerated some trends that were already in place. It's more likely that, uh, you know, it's, it's pulled some of these trends and accelerated them by a year or two or three. It's not that we're not going to use Zoom anymore. We might use it a little <laughs> bit less, but I think it's pretty ingrained in, in how business gets done now. And that's not going to change just because, uh, you know, we can go out to a restaurant or, or see a concert. Manesh Gami asked a question that uh, fits really well with where we were going anyway. Uh, what non-recovery stocks and trends do you see enduring and what impact can this have uh, on recovery stocks? So we both made, made a list here. And I look at, I say, strong companies showed their strength. Amazon, Walmart, Target, Apple, Disney, Best Buy did a good job. Uh, Dick's Sporting Goods did a great job. So it's one of those scenarios where this accelerated part of the story, Disney Plus would not be at whatever it is, 90 something million subscribers if we hadn't all been locked in our house and really looking for things to do. Wouldn't be there now. But would it be there 18 months from now? Yeah, absolutely. You can't skip WandaVision or, or Fal Winter Soldier and, and the Falcon or, uh, you know, the Mandalorian or uh, Ray and the Last Dragon, which comes out in a couple weeks. Like if you have a family, if you like that kind of content, you were going to get those channels at some point. And I think the same is true for everything that Walmart, Amazon, Target are doing with, uh, you know, accelerated delivery and curbside pickup. We're seeing the trend accelerate but winners are winning. Max, uh, you have some companies on your list as well. Yeah, Dan, you took all the easy ones. So uh, <laughs> I went with, uh, you know, I think electric utilities, right? Um, when the, in, in March, like everybody was like, uh oh, you know, how's this going to affect um, last March rather? Oh man, it's already March 2021, huh? So last year, like when the pandemic hit, nobody knew how this was going to affect anything. There's so much uncertainty, but you know, people are at home using uh, electricity still. Yeah, there's like less revenue coming in from industrial and commercial customers, but uh, there's higher margins on, on residential customers anyway. And, you know, those are big, stable businesses. Uh, they have a lot of interesting trends, too, that they have to invest in uh, in this decade, right? Renewable energy. They also have to invest in electric vehicles to prepare for the more, you know, more power sales that they have to 
come up with more supply. And also they're going to own a lot of the infrastructure, charging stations, new transmission lines and distribution lines. Uh, so I think electric utilities are going to be just fine after the pandemic as well. I also chose Johnson and Johnson and not because it is a vaccine manufacturer here. That's one of the most important companies uh, right now for the pandemic, but you know, it's, it's played its hand very well during the pandemic um, made a lot of really smart partnerships and some future oriented uh, industries and, and technology platforms, right. With smaller companies in genomics or multi-omics or cell therapy. Um, so it's, I think, well positioned for the future. And as the largest healthcare company in the world, you know, it can raise a ton of money and maybe go make some acquisitions. Even if some of these smaller companies have uh, some frothy valuations, you know, if Johnson & Johnson can issue some stock um, at all-time highs, then it might be a good idea. And Plus, uh, plus Max, a lot of pandemic babies and Johnson & Johnson has the <laughs> no more tears shampoo market absolutely cornered. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Thank you for supporting my argument there. <laughs> you also wanted to talk about Microsoft as having a pretty major healthcare opportunity. Yeah, Microsoft, you know, that did well during the pandemic for tech reasons. But what doesn't get talked about a lot is, you know, it's Azure platform is actually used a lot in healthcare applications, right? This is powering a lot of the, you know, we call it the genomics revolution or whatever you want to call it. I think it's more of a multi-omics uh, play. And, you know, Microsoft's very well ingrained there quietly kind of powering that digital transformation for a lot of those businesses. Um, so I think Microsoft's going to be a, a good company here coming out of the pandemic for reasons that maybe aren't so obvious right now. You're watching seven investing. Now we're going to take some of your questions in a few minutes that are relevant to this segment. Uh, then we're going to have a quick happy birthday, seven investing message from our founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. And then we're going to come back with a, a segment Max named. It's called No Stupid Questions. And I asked this morning, is that Max saying, hey, don't ask us any stupid questions? Or is that us saying there are no stupid questions? And I would argue, having worked in retail for a few years, there are definitely stupid questions. <laughs> like, like, but not, of course, from the seven investing audience. Max, are there any pandemic winners that you think are really going to struggle when we get back to whatever normal looks like? Yeah, I chose Moderna as the obvious one, right? Um, I mean, it's market valuation. is It's priced as if it's like a giant, massive, you know, drug developer. And obviously, it's going to do pretty well because of its, uh, you know, technology platform in making a vaccine here for the pandemic. But it still doesn't have any other drugs approved. It's, it, it's going to have others, but uh, it's going to take some more time, you know. And it has a very diverse technology platform. I, I don't doubt it will succeed. I just think its market valuation is a little ridiculous. And, uh, you know, it's possible in my mind, if you invested right now, you might never see a return or, you know, maybe not for five or 10 years. Uh, it's just drug companies in this state of uh, maturity that Moderna is in are not ever priced where this company is priced at. So there's just too much optimism right now uh, baked into those shares. Yeah, I'll throw one out that's doing really well. And I've mentioned it before, but it's Kroger. Uh, and it's not that I think Kroger is a badly run business. I think they were testing some interesting things with food halls and ways to turn it, its grocery stores into destinations. But they're coming up against the buzzsaw that is Amazon, Walmart, and Target in a business where those three major players don't have to make money. So I don't feel great about any grocery pure play, but I do think Kroger has been artificially doing very well because basically any place that has paper towels uh, is going to have you know people storming in and trying to buy supplies. 
And I don't necessarily think they've built that loyalty where people are shopping there because they want to go to Kroger. They're either going to Kroger because it's closest and that can be displaced by delivery or they're going to Kroger because wherever else they might go to was out of their kitty litter or their dog food or the exact uh, you know, cut of beef they were looking for. So I think Kroger is going to have a very difficult road. Uh, and I'd love to say, you know, that Papa John's has had an artificial rise where pizza delivery has done very well, but I'm not going to go quite on the limb because I do think Papa John's used this as a reach, as a chance to, you know, no longer be the racist pizza company and have like, like a whole different take. I mean, that wasn't their slogan, but that was clearly like what they'd become known for in the public eye. Uh, so, Max, I'm going to throw out a question that obviously you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. So we're going to relay things we've read on this question. Uh, Drew Bluss 22 says, do vaccines help prevent transmission to other people? I will say that what I've read is anecdotally, probably. Is that is that correct, Max? Yeah, Dan, you've asked me this a couple of times. So I actually looked into it recently. Um, that is the case. It does look like that is likely. That's, But, of course, this is science and health. So we have to actually test that within, you know, actual studies before we go out there and say, hey, look, it doesn't, you know, you can't transmit it anymore. Because if we're wrong, whoops. So it looks almost, yes, probably. Get that data from a, a study. So I've read up on this extensively because I'm vaccinated and planning to travel and my wife is not and my, my 17-year-old son is not and probably would be like the last one. And from what I can take it is it's less likely I pass on a severe case but that certainly means I need to take all precautions wherever I am. So masks and distancing and, you know, when I get home, like you technically don't have to quarantine if you've been vaccinated, but I probably will maintain a distance just to, you know, just to make sure, because frankly, we're all sick of each other anyway. So me going away for a week and then staying away for another week is not, is not the worst thing in the world. Just yeah, I would say, way- if I can add, yeah, just based on how, you know, the immune system works and biology works, it's almost certain that that would be the case, that if you're vaccinated or have had been infected, you would not transmit it in the future, not a severe case. But like you said, I think some of these behavior changes are going to stick with us uh, maybe for the next year or two or, or maybe longer. I mean, I can see myself wearing a mask next winter just to play it safe. Even, you know, I don't want the flu either, right? So I, I have to say, I've made a mild change, Max. I now, when I'm walking outside, carry my mask. No, no, I carry my mask. <laughs> and the second I see someone, because I live in Florida, so Nobody in my complex walking their dog is wearing a mask or going to the pool is wearing a mask, but I carry my mask. And as someone gets within 30 yards of me, I put it on, but I no longer keep it on for my entire walk. And that's only because there's not a lot of people outside when I'm walking. It got very, very hot here and there's nothing worse than a sweaty mask. So, you know, that's a slight change, but that's not a change to safety. That's not a change to respect for others. Justin Lamb says, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Alaska has been known to have the best customer support, similar to the type of comments you make in regards to Southwest. I've heard that as well. I've heard Alaska Airlines uh, has a lot of those consistencies. I've never flown Alaska Airlines. So it's one that I'm not going to consider an investment in an airline until I've used it. There's only, uh, I think it's four states I haven't been to. Maybe it's five, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Hawaii and Alaska, uh, there's one other, Oregon, I want to say. So perhaps at some point I'll get to fly Alaska Airlines to go visit, to cross that off. So Max, as we close up this segment, I'll throw out one and then you can throw out a few. What should investors be wary of in the coming year? And for me, it's beware of how comparisons are made. So we love in retail, we love in tech, 
you know, comp sales? What did we do last year and what did we do this year? And in retail, I think it's going to be really important to look at margin because if you sold a whole bunch of rice and beans and paper towels at low margins and then next year you sell a lot more steak and and other things and lobster and whatever that's higher margin but your overall sales are down if you made more money you made more money so i think we're gonna have to throw out the cursory look at some of these numbers we've had a lot of stocks fall those numbers are great but what will the comps be like next year who cares what the comps are like you're right we all bought laptops and desks and things like that so is that a big question for a best buy and a wayfair it is we're all still going to eat next year. So we're still going to need to go to grocery stores. We're still going to need to go to restaurants. But what we buy may change. So you really need to look at sort of the underlying numbers, not the top line numbers. Max, what are you looking at that's going to look a little different? Yeah, I would say that and from a different angle. So this is going to be a tricky like year or two period where investors can't just look at year over year growth percentages. Some are going to be down because last March and last you know first and second quarter of 2020 were were pretty terrible for some businesses and more so for some industries. So it's going to look bad or better for that matter, you know, this year, next year. Um, and additionally, I mean, the companies that are still riding, you know, pandemic tailwinds, a uh, company I own, Replogen, it makes products for uh, manufacturing biologic drugs. So it's sold just, you know, goes um, just gangbusters equipment sales to, you know, vaccine developers and antibody developers for the pandemic. And it said this year, it's still riding that. It's still going to get like 20, 25% of its total revenue this year uh, from basically, you know, pandemic uh, drugs that are being manufactured. But eventually that bill is going to come due, uh, maybe in 2022 or 2023. I mean, it's still good business. It's still growing. But uh, eventually that's going to fizzle out and, and kind of roll off the uh, the income statement. Another thing I'd like to touch on, Dan, is, you know, there's a lot of speculation in the market now. <laughs> yes, there is. I, uh, I, I talk about that a lot, but, you know, eventually that bill is going to come due too. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies going public that have no revenue and maybe you just hear about it on social media, um, or maybe the technology is not even that good, but they tell a really good story and they have some really, you know, um, swanky looking investor presentations. And, uh, it's very difficult sometimes for, t- uh, investors to tease out, you know, the signal from the noise. And, you know, one great example, of this has been Nicola, um, you know, people were critiquing that for a while and people just kind of cast aside bad information and negative information. And then later it came out that, yeah, maybe uh, Nicola did hype itself up a little bit too much and maybe GM didn't do enough due diligence. So I think that was just the first example. I think there's going to be quite a bit more of those examples uh, this year and in the next year, you know, and we're going to see it when they're reporting earnings. I mean, are they growing sales at the numbers you think they're going to? Probably not some of these. And um, you know, people aren't going to pay like 200, times sales or more, or, you know, sometimes these companies don't have any sales. So eventually people are going to get bored and uh, it's, it's, it might not be good. I also think we're going to see it with some of the SPAC and direct listing companies. And it doesn't mean these are bad companies, but Max, if you and I started a company we fully believed in, and we know we're three years away, but somebody comes to us and says, it's really easy to raise money now, <laughs> go out and raise $2 billion and guarantee that at least you're going to have enough money to get your vision out there. That's going to mean a couple of years of quarters. We're like, yeah, still working on it. Thanks for the money. <laughs> like, you know, and that's what a lot of these very speculative plays are going to be. That's not true of every SPAC. That's not true of every direct listing. But you are seeing companies come to market that are not ready to come to market because the money is easy. We saw this in the 90s 
The difference is you can see a path to profitability for many of these companies. And the cost of computing pre-cloud in the 90s meant that it didn't matter how great your animation you know, delivery company was. The technology on the consumer end and on the cloud on the hosting end did not match up to profitability. That's not true right now. But if you throw out the word sports betting, somebody throws you $2 billion. Like, and you know, if, if I said, yeah, it's going to be a clown-based sports betting uh, tied to pizza delivery, totally I'd get 4 or $5 billion. And that would make no sense. Um, so you got to be really careful. If you believe in something long-term, that's great. But that means long-term. I own most of Max's picks for the last six months. Uh, and I look at them and I don't worry that they're down 10%, down 2%, up 3%, whatever the number is, because I didn't buy them based on the short-term investor sentiment. I bought them based on what their, if it's a drug company, what's their pipeline look like? Where are they going to be in five years? I don't care where they are based on speculative investors right now. But Max, it's the first of the month. Our new picks are out. So let me do a quick word on that. We spend every month researching our best idea. Each one of us picks our best idea. So I might have three things I want to invest in. My pick this month is the number one thing I put my own money into or tell my friends and family about. We are really proud of it. Uh, and you can, of course, subscribe at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. We're going to be talking a lot more about our picks, what goes into it. We're going to be talking about the amazing new search engine on our site powered by Yext, which if you go, hey, I think Dan and Max talked about the Moderna vaccine. You'll be able to search on our site and you'll get to see all the show transcripts where we, in fact, talked about the Moderna vaccine. But before any of that happens, Sam Bailey, it is our birthday and we have a message from our CEO, Simon Erickson. March 1st, 2021 will mark our very first birthday with Seven Investing. One year ago, we founded the company to empower you to invest in your future. And we're doing something fun all month to celebrate this event. We'd like you to submit your stories of how Seven Investing has helped you on your investing journey. Do our stock recommendations give you actionable ideas to put into your own portfolio? Does our podcast and live stream give you up-to-date developments on the important business stories that are going on in the news? Or is there something else that we're doing that's helping you to empower your financial future? Please submit your ideas to us, either on Twitter by tagging us at 7investing, or by sending us an email to info at 7investing.com. At the end of the month, we'll be pulling seven of these stories and awarding a free one-year subscription to 7investing. Thanks again for sticking with us this past year, and we're really excited to see what our future will hold. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. Wow, Max, that is exciting news. We'll have more details. We're going to have Simon on. Uh, I don't know if it's Wednesday or Friday, but we'll be talking about our birthday. We'll be doing a whole celebration where, where all of us are on. So there's a lot to come. But we are now for the, the last segment of the show. We're going to do no stupid questions. So if you have some more questions you'd like to have us answer, uh, feel free to put them in the queue. Uh, Justin, we'll buy the beer. Uh, if I ever make it to Oregon, uh, I will be more than happy. Uh, the other two, North and South Dakota, convince me why I need to go there. Like I've been a lot of places. I am not sure I need to hit those two. And as much as Hawaii seems nice, every time I see Guy Fieri on there, the restaurant's always making spam. And that makes me very concerned about the underlying culture. I'm kidding. So wait, you've, you've been to Montana? I have. Oh, man. I, I, so I spent my early career 
uh, editing trade magazines. Uh, and one of them was called Band and Orchestra. And in the year I edited Band and Orchestra, I went to like band state band conventions in like 30 states. I've also done some pretty extensive driving trips where I, I've hit some states and I really didn't spend a ton of time in, but I was physically in them. But in my early days, I did travel quite a bit. Uh, but we're so we're going to do no stupid questions. And this one comes from Saleh What I Hear on Twitter. Uh, what will happen next in the food delivery space? Something has to change, no? My usual dish is $10, but on DoorDash, it's $12.50. Will third-party delivery always win? Wouldn't in-house delivery be more beneficial? So, Max, I don't know if you order in as much as I do, but I order in a lot. Do you order in sometimes? Yeah, every once in a while. Do you know if the food is marked up? Because it's not always, but sometimes it is. Do you yes. have a sense? So you, you track it well enough to know that. Yeah, some restaurants do. There's a really good wings place here in Pittsburgh, and um, it's actually in a couple of different cities called Wings Over, and then just whatever city name it is. And they are much more expensive on like Uber Eats or uh, any of those services. So I usually just go and pick it up if I if I do order. We had a Wings Over Newington when I lived in Connecticut. I have no idea if it's still there, but we used to get the uh, I think it was the 747. They all had different plain names. Yeah, not not a bad wing. Yeah, I think the third-party delivery model is broken, and it's only going to work if there's more transparency. I need to know. Like, when I'm on Instacart, it tells me flat out prices will be higher, and that's okay because I order Instacart when I literally need groceries and do not have time to go to get groceries. But I feel like if you told me DoorDash is always 10% more expensive plus the delivery fee, and then some restaurants would say, hey, we don't mark up our price, but we charge a higher, whatever it is, it should all be transparent. I think you're going to see more restaurants follow the Domino's model. And that might require regional innovation or chains partnering up. You know, maybe a couple of like-minded restaurants, you know, get together and say, let's hire third-party drivers together. We're on the same block. But Domino's is super duper reliable. DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates, Grubhub. Uh, here in West Palm Beach, we have Cravey, the delivery dudes. I'm not making any of these up. <laughs> and none of them are reliable and none of them are good. So yes, I think it's broken. I think the pandemic has shown us that unless we had drones and fully automated driving, which I don't think are going to be all that compatible because even if you have automated driving, so I have to go to my driveway and get it out of what, like a slot in the back? Like, you know, there's a lot of this that just doesn't play out. Um, so Florida Boy asks, do you do options trading? Never done it before, looking to start. Max, uh, can you like burst into flames or do something to show sort of how dangerous <laughs> this is? Yeah, I uh, I don't do options trading. I don't even know how it works, to be honest. But uh, I wonder if this question, you know, on Reddit at least, and maybe on Twitter too, people post pictures and snapshots of like, you know, what their uh, options look like. And they're up like, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars sometimes. So I think that makes people ask questions like this, but you don't see all the, the screenshots of people who've lost all their money or owe a bunch of money on margin or something. So, so, uh, so I'll, I'll refer back to my friend and our former boss, uh, Anand Chakavalu. And Anand used to tell me that he doesn't trust gamblers who only have winning gambling stories because I don't care how good you are at poker, which is not, is partially a luck-based game, no matter how good you are. You and I could sit down and know the basic rules, and if we're playing against the best player in the world and we get dealt four kings and he gets dealt four queens, we win, no matter how bad we are at the game or good we are at the game. With options, there is inherent 
risk. You can lose an unlimited amount of money. So I know that it's always been said to me, don't even think about options till you've invested for a year. But I will argue, don't even think about options until you've taken a reputable course in how to trade options. And honestly, why would you do that? The stock market's not a casino. It, it, you buy good companies, hold them forever, stop trying to make the quick score. I know in the casino, I'll always play some slot machines because it, it ups your comp points and there's some benefits to it and it's dumb fun. But the vast majority of my time is spent, is spent playing blackjack, which is a grinding game. You are not going to win. You're not going to come home playing $300 a night in blackjack up $20,000, which in theory could in other things. So you have to like the game. And for me, investing is about liking the long-term game. Nick says, Domino said they never made a profit on delivery. Uh, so how can DoorDash make it more profitable than a company who has perfected? I don't think they can. I mean, I think DoorDash's goal is volume. The problem is unless you had massive consolidation in the space, the ideal delivery for DoorDash is they pick up 10 things from a restaurant that are going to one or two buildings or, or a neighborhood. And you need such a massive concentration. That might happen in New York City. That may occasionally happen here in West Palm Beach where there are a lot of developments and buildings. Generally, though, you can see what your DoorDash driver, your Uber Eats driver, or any of them is doing. And I'd say it's 50-50 they even make another stop. And I'm ordering from places sometimes that are 30, 35 minutes away. They can't be making money on this. Uh, and I don't see some magic volume where it's going to get better. It's the old retail you know, the retail adage of, well, we'll sell $20 bills for $19 and make it up on volume. No, you won't. Like, I do not see this going well. We have room for a couple more of your questions and comments. And Max, this one came to you, but I'm actually, I think, going to field it. Hello, Max. I'm a 7investor subscriber. Thank you, Roy. We appreciate that. And really enjoy reading your picks on biotech slash gene editing. How can I build my circle of competency to fit into this space and understand good prospective companies? I, I believe in biotech tailwinds. There's just a lot I feel that's over my head. So you answered this on Twitter and said, we're going to be building out some resources. Why don't you talk about that first? And then I'll throw in sort of how I approach it. Yeah, so here at 7 Investing, we're always kicking around ideas. That's one of the beautiful things about having a small team, right? So we kind of have this like pipeline of projects that we're like, maybe we can do that. We're going to do this. This is already, this is next. You guys don't even know about it yet. Um, so we've talked about maybe ways to compile more of this basic research, like 101 articles, and maybe provide some like frameworks for how do you approach investing in biotech or retail or AI or something. Um, things that members of our team, our lead advisors are competent in and can share with you so that you have an objective way of, of looking at the stock market. Uh, so we might do that. But people ask me like, hey, do you have any good books? And it's like, I mean, I read a bunch of textbooks over the years, but I don't think you want to do that. So um, it's really, it is, there's a dearth. There's not a lot of good information out there about how to, where do you start? So maybe that's something that we should be doing. And that's the reason though, that we have a diverse team because I have spent my, say my expertise in say cord cutting. That's an area I've been following since it was a phenomenon, since people started going, maybe I want to get rid of cable. And frankly, I've been following the cable industry since there was a cable industry. You know, that, that cable really started becoming a thing when I was in high school. And then my first professional job in 1994 was editing a magazine called Sound and Communications, which was professional audio and video, but started to touch on that space. And so you can't get my, I'd say 10,000 hours, but it's probably 100,000 hours in that space. So, but what do you have? You have access to us. So how do I grow my competency? 
I watch Max and Manisha talk about this space, and then I start to know when I look at something, what would Max say if he saw this? And you start to be right more and more often. You start to know this is the criteria Max would apply, and this is what he'd be looking at. And then you start to be able to do some of his work on your own. So when he says it, that's going to give you more conviction. So I'm never going to be an expert in biotech. I don't like school, so I'm not going back to read school books. Uh, I'm not going to do that. But I will understand more about you know, a drug pipeline was not something I ever understood before coming in contact with Max and Manisha. Something like a platform that might allow for 100 different drugs is something they've explained to me. So you get more and more confident. And if I tell you something like, okay, and this is one I talk about a lot, Dollar General will be judged by its comps, and that's not the real number because its stores get to profitability really quickly, and they max out, and then they go open a 1,000 more over the next year. So the number to really watch is, did their profitability shrink per store? Did they slow down in opening new stores? I know that because I've been in that space for a very long time. There's not a book you can read that tells you that. So sure, we want you to gain your own knowledge. We want you to understand what you're listening to in an earnings call, but you have access to all of us. If you're a member of 7investing, you can ask us a basic question on investing in biotech. And during our members calls, we'll answer that or we'll email you back or we'll talk about it on one of these shows. I think it's one of the core things of being a smaller service is that we really have the ability. We're your research team. Like we're doing the homework for you. We've got two more. Uh, they are both from Ship of Fools uh, GD. GD, of course, being the Grateful Dead based on uh, the logo our friend uses there. He wants to know about Groupon as a tur- as a turnaround story and Eventbrite as a turnaround story. Max, I don't know if you have thoughts. These are more my space, but feel free to raise your hand if you want to talk. And here's how I look at Groupon. Groupon was a pretty bad business before the pandemic. So here's the business of Groupon. Your local pizza place says, hey, we need some new customers. You can go to Groupon and get uh, you know, two pizzas and a, and a large soda for $10.99. Normally, it would cost $19.99. So you're getting 50% off. The business gets about half that money. So they're getting $4.99 on something they would normally sell for $19.99. You as a customer are getting a great deal, cheap pizza. Here's the problem. The only way this works long term is if I go to that pizza place and the pizza is so awesome I'm willing to go back and pay full price for it. And Max, you've been to a lot of pizza places. You've been to a lot of wings places. Are there that many that differentiate themselves? I think the answer is is no. And that can be true for retailers. We tried it once when I ran the toy store, and I ran a unique destination toy store. But if you came in with a $20 gift card you bought for $10 and you weren't into $60 board games and dollhouses and all the high-end stuff we sold – you probably spent your $20 and never came back. So the only way Groupon gets a lot of repeat business is if their product doesn't work. Like if if you go in, you don't like the pizza that much, and I go, well, I guess I'll keep this promotion to bring people in the door. So I don't think Groupon was ever a great business. I thought Groupon Goods was a good idea. They got out of that business. So it's too easy to duplicate. Restaurants can, and, and it's not just restaurants, but businesses can do this on their own by offering you know, new customer coupons. It's very inexpensive to be in like a local mailed coupon book. We used to do that when I ran the toy store. It'll cost me about $400 to get into 20,000 homes. And usually acquiring one customer paid for that ad because my average customer value of a recurring customer was close to seven $800. Um, so it paid for the ad in one person. And I usually get three or four 
Groupon generally brought in a lot of looky-loos, a lot of people that were just taking advantage of deals. That's a word you haven't heard in a while. Is, uh, is Groupon doing anything to turn around, I think, is an important thing. Um, I looked at the numbers this morning, and <laughs> revenue's fallen every year since 2016. And in 2020, revenue was like half of what it was in 2016. So what is is the company doing anything differently, or it's just... Uh... I, I don't think they can. It doesn't help that, that there's white label technology, so every local newspaper company could offer the same product. It's just, it is a good idea, but Groupon doesn't benefit from the recurring relationship. So if I'm in a new city and my back hurts and I need to find a massage therapist and I get a Groupon and I go claim it, let's say every time I travel to that city, I like that person and I, and I, and I, tra- and I see that person, I book them two or three times a year, Groupon has no ongoing stake in that relationship. That's the fundamental problem of their business. So in theory, the way Groupon should work is they should take less upfront but if the relationship works, and I don't know how you would track this, but somehow through the app where you get some sort of discount, but not the massive discount, where if you use it through the Groupon app, app as a recurring customer, Groupon gets 5% of that or whatever it is. Their business model would have to be blown up. I don't see any possibility. The second one he'd like to know about here is Eventbrite. Uh, Max, do you know what Eventbrite does? Yeah, they like events and tickets and things like that. Back in the day when you could go to concerts, I remember Eventbrite. So the problem with Eventbrite is they come up against Ticketmaster, AEG, uh, two major companies that own the venues they sell tickets in for the most part. So if you're Eventbrite, your universe where you could sell tickets is mostly people having events in secondary or alternative visits. And it's awesome if you and I rent out a VFW hall, Max, to have a rap battle and we sell tickets. This is the least plausible <laughs> thing that could happen. But let's pretend we did that. And of course, all the seven investing audience would want to see that. So then Eventbrite might provide the ticket platform. The problem is if uh, you know Metallica or Taylor Swift or, I don't know, Keith Urban decide to do an arena tour and go out, they don't have the option of using Eventbrite. They have to go with whoever controls those major arenas. So... I don't know. I don't think they can ever be anything other than a really niche company. Um, and it's a cool product. I, I would love to see the the ticket industry is super sleazy. I mean, Max, have you paid a fee on a ticket to print it out at home? <laughs> like, yeah, like, if you do that or if you pick it up, there's a convenience charge. There's always some charge like, well, why am I using this? Yeah. I mean, I always go back to my first mortgage when I had to pay something called a miscellaneous fee and I was told just pay it. They're not going to explain it. Um, the ticket industry is rife with that. So I do think there'll be some growth for Eventbrite where anybody who can use it will use it. I just think the audience for people who can use it is going to be relatively small. And if we look at the ticket space, you know, things like third-party ticket markets, if you're a season ticket holder for, say, the New York Rangers, as my college roommate is, the Rangers highly incentivize you to use their third-party ticket and basically say, yeah, if you go use like StubHub or something, eh, that person might not get in. They don't say it that menacingly, but so I'm I'm very wary of, or they might, you know, it is, uh, I'm very wary of these sort of things that are a good idea that don't necessarily result in profitability. Uh, we are nearing the end of the show. I thought we were going to like 30 minutes. We did not go 30 minutes. We've gone significantly longer than that. This is one of my favorite questions I've asked. It, it uh, plays into the theme. Sam Bailey, if you'd like to bring up the finisher, that would be great. Which recovery stock industry uh, will prove to be the best 10-year investment? Uh, and hotels won by a slight amount, but 
airlines, hotels, and energy all basically tied. And I would argue, Max, that the loser here, cruise lines, is on a broad level, the only industry that looked to be long-term profitable before all of this. I think there are major questions as to whether airlines will fully recover because technology has made it so we don't need to travel as much. On the high-end business traveler, we might only be three to five years out from having some of these space companies disrupt that on the very, very profitable, you know, I need to get to Australia as fast as I can from New York market. I think we've seen peak oil. Am I right about that? Like, I don't, I don't see there's a new heyday for those companies. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think, um, actually, I think Shell came out recently and said they've probably hit or will soon hit peak oil production just due to consumption trends, right? And there's electric vehicle markets coming out. So uh, that's oil and gas producers are going to have a pretty tough go here the next decade, I think. And if you're watching this show, you know I'm a fan of the cruise industry, but the major cruise lines were very profitable before this. Now, it's multiple years before they recover, but demand trends do suggest they will recover. If you look at, you know, Royal Caribbean just came out and talked about 2022 bookings, and they were very strong, and they pointed out that they weren't just strong from existing customers. I thought they were going to get, you know, existing customers to flood back at low prices. They got new customers specifically among the vaccinated population. So healthcare workers, 65 plus, people looking for a getaway. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy sailing because the free offers for people like me, I know I'm booked a year from now, February 6th, on a a bigger ship that I've ever been on for free, which is not normally what's offered for free. So obviously, there's a desire to make sure there's a base level of bodies on these ships. But I don't think most airlines, I think Southwest is going to do better, as I talked at the top of the show, for real reasons. They've taken over routes that were profitable routes for other airlines that those airlines were willing to walk away from the slots. And those slots are what's hard to come by. Hotels, I think hotels have Airbnb and and VRBO and all those other services just sort of splintering their business. And I know, like, in theory, a hotel company can offer some of that. But would I use Airbnb to stay in somebody's guest bedroom or would I do it through, you know, Marriott? Obviously, I'm going to do it through Airbnb. So, Max, anything you want to add on this one? I know I've, I've, monop- I've monopolized the discussion a little bit. No, that's good. This is more in your wheelhouse than me. But uh, hotels, I mean, I actually prefer to stay in a Marriott than an Airbnb because you know what you're going to get. And it's a little more convenient to figure it out ahead of time. So uh, I- So I have mixed feelings. Um, I've had some very bad Airbnb experiences where I had one where I loved everything about it, uh, staying in Bellevue, Washington, but the shower was like a coffin. I had to literally like stand in the shower and like to like wash your face. Like you had, it was, it was uncomfortable. We stayed at one in Hollywood, Florida that the pictures must've been from 1972 because the place was an absolute dump. That being said, my, my family's staying in in a VRBO uh, in a couple of weeks in a complex where we'd like to buy going forward. So we want to make sure we like the amenities, that the restaurant's good, that the Lazy River's fun, like all the different things there. And we've been to the resort. So we know the differences between units are are going to be cosmetic and who their cleaning company is. So I'm a big fan of doing as much homework as you can on an Airbnb, because if it's just me, I'm staying in a hotel. Hotels have hotel bars, hotels have hotel restaurants. There's usually a Starbucks associated. Just everything is made for travel. But I do think there's going to be a lot of disruption in that space. uh, And I'm sure we will talk about it. Max, this has been fun. Seven Investing Audience, 
Reminder, our new picks are out today. If you would like to buy them, not only do you get our picks today, and I will say I hadn't heard of some of them. There's some really risky ones. I will say that my pick, most of the team had never been to, and a decent amount of the team has since gone to this particular location or locations uh, since I made the pick. So there's a Sam, lot of it. There's, there's a graphic. Why don't you show the graphic? There, there is. Sam Bailey, bring up the graphic. Oh, there you go. Yes, you can see Dan chose low-risk retail. I can't believe he chose GameStop. I mean, that was a crazy (laughs) pick, Dan. I did not pick GameStop, just for the record. But yeah, you've got Max with a moderate-risk company, which is not typical for Max. Matt Cochran with a high-risk company, which is not typical for him. Simon Erickson, low-risk. Dan Klein, low-risk. Manisha Sammy, very high risk. If you're looking for something, and I will tell you tomorrow afternoon, I am buying some of Manisha's pick once our members have had a chance. And Steve Simonton coming in with a high-risk pick as well, all in different spaces, really shows the depth of expertise on the seven investing team. So of course, if you would like to subscribe, you can do that at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. That is $17 a month, all our picks forever. All, all, all the ones in the past, you have to stay a member to get the new ones. <laughs> you get everything we ever picked. You can filter them by all sorts of things. I wrote an article last month on how I use our picks uh, that, that you can have access to. There's all sorts of great content. New member call on the third Friday of the month. Subscriber call on the third Friday of the month. Uh, cooking lessons with Max. Who knows what you are going to get? It is really exciting. We're going to keep the uh, the party going. It is our anniversary month. If you watched the show earlier, you saw that uh, Simon Erickson shared some, some details on our new contest where we want you to tell us how 7investing has helped you. It's helped me. I, I can say that not just as the fact that I work here. It has diversified my portfolio. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, and thank you, Mom. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us, info at 7investing.com. If you have questions about what a membership means, if you're a member and you don't know how to get to something or you're curious about why we do something we do, that's a great place to share it. And you can reach us on Twitter at 7investing. If you have ideas for future shows, questions you want us to answer, we probably won't you know, uh, research an obscure stock for you. That said, if you ask us a question about Groupon or companies we have feelings about, uh, we are not going to shy in sharing it. So again, didn't intend to go an hour here, Max, but we have basically gone an hour and uh, I've teased it. There's going to be a reason for that coming soon. Think, uh, think grids and what traditional television shows look like. For Max Chatsko, for Sam Bailey behind the glass, I am Dan Klein. We'll see you Wednesday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.